And Ahmed said to me, yeah, John, you got to write a song about sex. So I, I thought about it and then Naughty Naughty was born and I cried. I just thought, man, I got no chance. I can't compete with this. When he wheeled out of Canada, there were four men and a dog waving him off in the rain. And when he wheeled back in, there was a million people lined in the streets and the brass bands in the street were da 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 You couldn't write it. Hello and welcome to episode 15 of Vintage Rock Pod, the podcast series that proudly claims that my music is better than yours. I'm Paul Stevenson. Thanks as always for hitting play. Now on today's episode, I've got another fantastic interview for you from someone that might not immediately spring to mind when you think of classic rock, but what a career he's had and what a story he has to tell. As well as having his own number one smash hit around the world, he's written for and worked with some megastars like Roger Daltrey, Meatloaf and Tom Jones, as well as writing and performing songs for massive Hollywood blockbusters too. But there's the other side to his tale as well, a 19-year court case that meant he was unable to release new music properly for nearly two decades, racking up huge sums of debt, but ultimately coming out the other side stronger than ever. I am talking about John Parr, and the interview coming up is brilliant. Also on the episode, we'll catch up with all the latest news in the rock world with author and journalist, our good friend Tim Peacock. And the Vintage Rock Pod Quiz is back. A few people have mentioned it to me over the last few weeks or so, so it seems as good a point of time to to bring it back as any, doesn't it, really? So you can test some of your musical knowledge later in the show as well. All that plus my top five song recommendations too. It's another absolutely packed show. Before we start, though, remember to check out our new website, VintageRockPod.com. As well as having all the episodes and information and all that sort of stuff on there, there's your chance to sign up to become a VRP VIP. Sign up for our once-a-week newsletter. It's only once. We're not going to spam you. We're not going to fill your inbox. Nothing like that. Which, over time, is going to give you the chance to win some great goodies. You'll also find out about who the future guests are going to be first, and you'll get your chance to put a question forward to future guests as well. All you got to do is go to vintagerockpod.com, fill in the really short form on there, and that's it. You're a VRP VIP. Big, big thanks to everyone that's already signed up and received the first newsletter that we sent out last week. So with that out of the way, it's time to fire into this week's show. Now, back in my radio days, I interviewed John Parr maybe eight years ago or so, and he was a wonderful storyteller, so he was on my hit list of guests to get on to the Vintage Rock Pod, and I'm delighted that he agreed. He was busy in the studio working on new material, but I caught up with him before Christmas for a good long chat about his career and his incredible life in general. So sit back and enjoy this wonderful interview with a really sincere, warm and talented guy. Here's Mr. John Parr. I'm delighted to be joined by a Grammy-nominated artist with number one single around the world, 10 million-plus album sales, and has written songs for so many major Hollywood movies too. And that's not forgetting Winning Crofts as well. It's my pleasure to welcome to Vintage Rock Pod the naughty, naughty Mr. John Parr. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. Or is it good evening? It could be wherever at this point. Couldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Pleasure to speak to you again, John. Now, I've got to mention just Great quickly there, Crufts. Um, what was the story? That's not very rock and roll, but fantastic to win nonetheless. Yeah, well, I guess it wasn't with an Afghan. It was with a German Shepherd. So it is a bit of rock and roll. <laughs> I uh, yeah, we won. We won best German Shepherd male. That's a long time ago. Well researched, man. That's a long time ago. But yeah, there's a dog called Mr. President. Yeah. And we bred. We bred German Shepherds. Uh, and we were really into the breed for many, many years. But obviously, as 
as time got more constrained and the kids came along, the dogs took a back seat. <laughs> indeed, indeed. We know that feeling well. Um, so it's, it's, it's a difficult place to start with you because you've got such a, a, a long career. You've got such a wide ranging career as well. So I'm old. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> well, I didn't like to say that. I'm, I'll leave that to you. <laughs> Show them a picture though. I don't look bad. No, no, not at all. Definitely not. Um, <laughs> we'll start with the iconic image of you with the, the Gibson, the, the Stars and Stripes. Where did that come from? Because you had that that for a very long time haven't you i've had that since 71 um wow turned professional when i was 19 played a, a residency in guernsey uh really heavy shows 13 shows a week but i didn't drink anything that whole six months saved the money and then went down to surrey sound and bought the les paul deluxe and my buddy I used to make motorbike fairings for the Grand Prix motorbike guys out of fiberglass. And he said, I'd like to make you this special mask that goes on the front of that guitar. And we put that on in 71 and it's been on and it's still on. That's incredible, isn't it? Especially the Stars and Stripes because uh, your major success originally came in America, didn't it? I mean, before we jumped that far though, um, you were in successful bands, you were touring, you did Europe, that sort of stuff, but you really, really big break came, didn't it? When you used to send out cassettes and try and get a bit of work, songwriting, that sort of stuff. And you got a call from what can only be described as a global superstar. From David or from Meatloaf, I suppose. From Meatloaf was the first one. Yeah, I mean, I signed this little, I probably told you last time, I signed this little publishing contract in 83. I was working in this little eight-track studio, and of course it was cassettes then and one-inch tape, and um, 500 quid they signed me up for. Uh, Lawyer was 400, train was 50 quid, so I made 50 (laughs) quid uh, out of the deal. They used to give me £100 to make each demo so I could afford to pay musicians. Sent stuff out. Uh, got interest from Rod Stewart and from um, Dinah Ross. But the call, the first bite was meatloaf. And that kind of changed everything. And you spoke, well, I spoke to you before previously in, in, in my radio days. And you said that within a week of getting this call off, off meatloaf, you're over there in, was it Connecticut with his family? And it all yeah. kind of snowballed from there. Snowball there. And um, it's funny, i just seen Bruce Springsteen's uh, new video. And a lot of those faces were in that same studio, a bit younger then, uh, with Meatloaf, you know, because they kind of shared musicians. Yeah. And uh, it was really weird for me because I was like, uh, you know, a Yorkshire, a northern musician that had been in eight-track studios. Suddenly I'm in a world-class studio with world-class musicians. Within a couple of days they're going, what do you think of this, John? you think I should do that? I was really welcome. <laughs> but I was ready, you know, I was kind of case-hardened from all the years on the clubs, you know. Now, how did you find working with Meatloaf then? Because obviously his reputation is of, um, I don't know, a fearsome man yeah. probably, or a difficult man at times. And you obviously forged a really good relationship with him. Yeah, he's like, people say, watch it, you know, bite your leg or he'll throw a piano lid at you, you know. he's. But no, he and I, you know, we met at, we met at Newcastle City Hall. He was doing, uh, he was doing a tour there. And that's when I gave him the cassette and we just hit it off. But of course the songs, as I'd said before to you, the songs that I gave him, I was singing like him. So it was like his own records he was listening to. He loved it. And uh, he split with Jim once again and was looking for a new writer. And I think he saw me as, 
you know, the White Hope, Great White Hope. Fantastic. And just skipping forward a few years, you, you two actually performed and recorded a duet together, didn't you? Rock and Roll Mercenaries, which was a big hit as well, wasn't it? Do you know, it's funny. I saw a link on it. I clicked on it yesterday because, you know, links come through on Google and it said, oh, mm-hmm. Rock and Roll Mercenaries. I put it up and I forgot. It's a stunning video shot with the, the late, great Terry Donovan, who's like a photographer. He was the guy who did Addicted to Love for Robert Palmer with those beautiful girls. And some of those girls are in that, if you watch, in, in that video. <laughs> but yeah, it was a great record. Recorded that with Frank Fari over in Germany. Great days. And you talk, I was going to say, you talk about the video there. I mean, Meatloaf's eyes in that video, he's looking fearsome again, using that word again for him. But he just looked like he was ready to tear, wasn't he? He was ready to go. Yeah, he wasn't. The thing is, he was in good shape. Though. He wasn't, you know, I normally got very obese in the Bat Out of Hell days. So he's probably three or four stone lighter. And um, we did a lot of touring together with that record. So we were all over the world doing things. And I think that's how the friendship forged. But it's really weird. He's just as we say in England, big boned, you know, he's not, he's not a big eater. He certainly doesn't drink, you know, so he's, uh, he's just big, a big Texan lad who was raised on steaks, I think. <laughs> it's not a bad way to be at all. Um, so yeah. going back to your, your own singles then, the first one that cut through and went big was, was Naughty Naughty. Now, well, tell us a little bit um, about that, behind that. While I was working with Meatloaf, I, I, got, I got taken on with a guy called John Wolfe, who was the, uh, he was the production manager for The Who. Keith had died, so I met him at a farewell party for The Who, and he said, do you mind if I start pitching your, your stuff? So while I'm at Meatloaf, he calls me and he says, I'm with Atlantic, I'm with Armored Erdogan at Atlantic, and they really like your demos. They want you to come over to New York. I went to New York, met Armored Erdogan and Doug Morris, and they signed me and um, sent me down to Criteria Studios where Eric Clapton had done 461 and uh, Bee Gees were down there, and Steve Stills was in the other studio. But Naughty Naughty wasn't written. We'd got 10 tracks and we used to just warm up with this riff, Naughty Naughty, and it developed. And I started writing words to it. And Ahmed said to me, John, you've got to write a song about sex. So I, I thought about it. And then Naughty Naughty was born. <laughs> and of course, the other thing I wanted to do was to bring in all those weird sounds that sampling had just begun in that era. Digital was just surfacing. So JJ from The Art of Noise flew over and uh, without, a, without a fair light and discs, the Bee Gees lent us their machine and we had to make all the sounds from scratch. So all those sounds you hear on Naughty Naughty was just me and JJ fooling around in the studio. Incredible stuff, incredible stuff. And you did a lot of touring, didn't you, with some big bands? You were touring with Toto as well at one point. Toto was the first, uh, was the first one. I mean, again, I probably told you on, on, uh, on your radio show, you know, but it's a story worth telling for anybody out there that's struggling and losing hope. I mean, I can remember in 1983 putting Toto 4 on and I cried. I just thought, man, I've got no chance. I can't compete with this. Spool forward to 1985 and I'm on tour with them. Uh, they're in the wings watching me, punching in the air. They played on my records. In fact, I played with uh, Bobby Whitlock. We just shot a film, but, uh, not Bobby Whitlock, Bobby Kimball from... Um, from the original singer from Toto. We just did something together. Uh, and again, you couldn't write it, you know. Uh, so anybody out there thinking, you know, just do the work. Do the work, believe, and uh, measure yourself against the best. Forget everybody in between. Look at who you think's the best. And, 
put the gloves on. Absolutely. And you talk about doing the work and, and hope and things like that. And that leads us nicely to, to St. Elmo's Fire. And then um, a lot of people on the, on the face of it originally kind of saw it as the soundtrack to, to obviously the movie that came with it. Um, but the, the meaning behind the song was so much more, wasn't it? Well, it was, you know, again, David Foster, the you know, world famous record producer, he loved Naughty Naughty. And he called me and said, look, I'm doing this movie. Would you like to come over and uh, write something for it? And um, I got there and he was exhausted. He, he really exhausted. And, uh, but I persuaded him just to give me, he wanted me to sing something already recorded. It wasn't great. I said, look, let's try and write something. And we wrote St. Elmo's really, really quickly. Uh, but I was struggling with the words and I'd looked at the script and I couldn't identify. I'm, I'm a working class lad from, you know, from the north of England, secondary school, left at 15. These In the film, these are rich kids, Silver Spoon, worrying about how they're going to, you know. <laughs> yeah. And it just didn't resonate with me. And um, the director, Joel Schum the late Joel Schumacher came down and I, I just wasn't, I wasn't fired up. And then David showed me a video cassette of this young guy from his hometown, Vancouver, that had broken his back a year earlier. And he was literally setting out on, on he wanted to wheel his wheelchair around the world uh, to raise money for spinal research and awareness. There was no internet then, it was just a little story. And um, I watched this video and it changed my life. I, all my own struggles were reflected in this guy, you know, it's kind of... Uh, it was, it was the metaphor for my own struggle, really. And um, so I wrote this, this lyric about what I thought would happen, that he was going to go across deserts, across mountains. And, uh, but I had to make it so that the film company wouldn't go, what's this pair of wheels? So they thought it was Demi Moore's Jeep. For once in his time, a man has his life. They think that's when Emilio Estevez gets the girl. But I'm amazed that they swallowed brackets, man in motion. Then, because it was such a tight deadline, they never asked me why. And the rest was history, you know. Um, I knew in that moment that it was something, we'd been gifted it. It came, as I think all great music comes out of the uh, Keith Richards girl. When somebody says, Keith, where does the music come from? He goes, I do that, you know, or I do that. You see. Um, yeah, you know, I don't take credit for it. I'm just the vessel for it. And, uh, but I was prepared. And uh, the rest, of, you know, we've raised 280 million wow. Canadian dollars for spinal research now. He wheeled around the world. Uh, he's just been inducted into the uh, Natural History Museum in Canada. We just did the big thing. It's just, you can't believe, you know, this little kid that dreamed. And he, the, the, the man that dreamed. And together we, and with David, we, we reached the stars. Absolutely did indeed. And it became a global smash hit everywhere, didn't it? Everyone knows it. Everyone still knows yeah. it today. It's still played on the radio. Yeah. It's just one of those lasting legacy type of songs. I was a million people, Chinese people, when he wheeled across the Great Wall and they were all singing. So almost. <laughs> it was weird. It was like bizarre, you know. And then when he wheeled back, when he wheeled out of Canada, there were four men and a dog waving him off in the rain. And when he wheeled back in, there was a million people lining the streets and the brass bands in the street were da-da-da-da-da-da. It was just, uh, you couldn't write it. It was like, they'd say, we've got to tone it down. It's too smaltzy or whatever, but it's not, you know, it's true. And um, smaltzy, whatever. Um, the, the song is just, it, it's just a phenomenon. And one of the best performances of it, I mean, I, I urge anyone to go and check it out on YouTube, is, is when you did at Royal Albert Hall. And when you sang uh, yeah. it, it was so moving and emotional. Thank you. It, it, was, it was lovely. Yeah, um, 
I do occasionally when I when I doubt myself, I I, I will have a look at that because it's fairly near to me now. It's not too long ago, and um, I think it was a double thing. It was the first time at the Albert Hall for me. I did it with Richard Marks, and Richard had lost his father. Mm. I'd lost my father. And I knew we were both doing it for our dads. So if you watch me at the very end, I kind of go to my dad. My dad always said, you don't need these electric guitars and these martial amps. Just sit on a stool, tell a few stories and play your guitar. And I thought, crikey, dad, you know, it's all gone full circle. I got a stand innovation and I'll never forget it. You know, greatest thing, you know, I think for an artist, you know, when people stand, I love it, you know, and particularly when it's not my crowd. It was, it was Richard's crowd. And they listened and they, they got it and uh, made it all worthwhile. It just made it all, you know, because, you, you know, you can imagine you get to, when you have something so big, you become this always a one hit wonder and everything else you do. It's almost like, and I carried that anchor dragging behind me for a long time. And because my career was mainly in America, nobody knew the rest of it. Yeah. But now uh, you realize even great actors and great, but they're known for, Oh, you did one floor of the cuckoo's nest. So what, there's always something to hang it, and I'm just lucky that I got one to hang it. On. Absolutely, yeah. one indeed. Um, now, when you talk about songwriting and things like that, we'll move on to, to what you did with Roger Daltrey and you, the special, special song that you did uh, for him, um, the, the tribute to Keith Moon under a raging moon. Now, how did all that come about? Well, as I said, my manager for certainly those. Uh, meteoric years was John Wolfe who you know he he started out as Keith's driver in the 60s wow. <laughs> and he ended up being manager and he, he was still with them when they bought Shepperton Studios and it was a film studio everything so I think every Who story and every Moon story I heard it from the horse's mouth <laughs> on all those millions of miles we travel yeah he'll have plenty of stories to tell as well <laughs> yeah and so I just thought um I want to I want to write uh a real tribute to Keith and the Who, because they were so influential to so many people. A real, I mean, they were a band that everybody was a frontman, weren't they? Everybody you looked at was just iconic. And um, so I was writing with a girl called Julia Downs. We wrote some strong songs together. Ironically, it was written on the piano. Okay. Where, and when you think, you know, yeah. obviously the keyboard bit, but it's big guitars. It was written on the piano. And... Um, just recorded it and John sent it to Roger and Roger just said, man, I love it, you know. And uh, I recorded it with him, sang back in vocals. Then he asked me, would I do it at Madison Square Garden? With him. Oh, so wow. we did it as a duet at Madison. <laughs> and it was, uh, you know, I mean, I was a little boy. I used to get with my dad and watch Muhammad Ali, you know, in black and white at Madison Square Garden. And again, pinch yourself, you know, I'm there with Daltrey. Um, Empress was on stage. Yoko Ono, John's, uh, I think, I don't think Julian was there. Sean was there. All these kind of uh, iconic people. And, um, you know, it was just special. And, and uh, the song is really about Woodstock. You know, it's like uh, the helicopter coming down and all this crowd reaching up. And I tried to capture it. And I, I did. In fact, John Entrissel also recorded it. I don't know if you know that yeah. story. You know? Yeah, yeah. John, John wanted to do it at Live Aid. And I guess yeah. we got to play Who Songs. You know? <laughs> but what a, what a thing to, you can't, again, you, you, you couldn't write it. It had been... Funny old career, you know, funny old career. Absolutely. And just talk about the drummers that were involved in that song as well, because when they heard that, that it was going to be a tribute to Keith. Oh, man. Everybody, you know, they all, all, the, all the kind of Copeland came down, Carl Palmer came down. A great story with uh, Cozy Powell. I don't know if I've told you one. 
Cozy had this great big kit. It was all mic'd up. And he just walked in, sat on the drum stool, put his foot on the bass drum, and he just kicked the kit all over. <laughs> just kicked it. He went, I think Keith would have liked that. And that was Cozy's. Uh, but, it, yeah, you know. And we didn't ask. They kind of ran and said, look, we'd love to come and play, you know. And that was just... Yeah, I mean, I I grew up listening to these guys' records, you know, and like you say, you know, to be I love drummers anyway. And Keith, of course, was it was it, wasn't it? Kind of there was Bonham and there was Moon, you know, two very diverse characters, but very difficult for a drummer to kind of shine. Mm-hmm. You know, he's always great drummers like drummers, but these guys, your mum's knows a Keith Moon. You know, like, you know, that's iconic. When when the man in the street knows, hey, that's Keith Moon. Absolutely, um, you had a, a big gap in your in your career as well. Once they did, yeah. you had a little bit of trouble behind the yeah. scenes. Um, Somebody in the team, I won't name him, but I put my trust in him. I loved him, and uh, he wasn't right. And uh, so, come the nineties, I was you know still clinging on to near the top of Everest, and I slid down very quickly because I, I was in a court case for nineteen years. Uh, uh, they just ran me ragged and ran a huge bill up. Couldn't get a major deal because there's always a little box that says, are you in litigation? You tick that box, it's good night. You know, you, you can't. But I had a little deal in Switzerland uh, that put a Man With A Vision album out. But, um, and um, they put out, they put out, well, they paid for the Under Par album. But they spent all their money. They had no promotion. So I was just, I, th- I think they're very worthy records with some strong songs. But it looks like, you know, a lot of people, I think a lot of people in their career fade. And, you know, it's the natural thing, you know, survival of the fittest. But it may sound egotistical, but I challenge anybody to look at the, any of those records and go, there ain't a couple of killers, you know, on there. But you can't. And it got to the point where, the, you know, even, even the rock was setting in, Atlantic Records didn't like me doing movies. So they wouldn't release Three Men and a Baby. They wouldn't release The Running Man. And they, they, they were huge movies, but, mm. and, and they wouldn't release the records. And uh, they wanted me to just be this rock and roller. So that aligned to the court case. I just kind of, and it, so com- the beauty was, you know, there's another thing for people listening out there, you know, not just in music. <clears throat> Sometimes, the worst thing that you think has happened to you can actually be a blessing. So I couldn't make music, so, but my wife and I, we had a few Bob by then, and we thought we, we could start, we'd struggled all our lives. We'd cop it up, you know, that phrase to, you know, to buy a loaf of bread. We literally, my wife paid the bills yeah. for so many years. And um, we started a family, and I saw my sons from babies to 18 year olds, never missed a day out of their life. Um, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't lost my career. So, you know what? I'll take, I'll take my sons, you know, I'll take my family. And now it's coming full circle. I'm still hungry and, and a few miles left in the tank. So, you know, things are all right, you know. But, you know, everybody's got a story with that court case. I bet anybody yeah. you interview will tell you a sad old story, you know. And it's, it's awful, you know, but I think mine may just be the longest, 19 years, you know. And the debts I ran up, you know, I mean, I had one point credit card debts of 150 grand, you know. It was in those days, can you remember when it used to come through the letterbox, it goes, borrow 10 grand interest-free. And I was just teaming and ladling for... And then fortunately, right at the end, I was able to kind of pay it all off on what I won. Man. But it made me ill, you know. 
it took its toll. You know? Yeah. But talking about the positives of that, again, you, you got to spend so much time with your family and just speaking about, yeah, man. you got into martial arts, didn't you? And, and your sons are incredible. Yeah. I mean, um, I, well, cross came out of it as well. You know, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm competitive. So I'm trying to be the best. I'm not, but I'm trying, I'm reaching. And with, with dogs, I thought, well, I want to, I want to breed the best. I want to, you know, and we did with cross and with martial arts. My sons got into it very early. My youngest was four years old when he started doing Taekwondo. Uh, but we were blessed to have a great trainer in Doncaster, Kenny Walton. And um, I got the book and he said, he said to me, John, you shouldn't be sitting at the back of the class. You should do it. I said, man, I'm 40, you yeah. know. And uh, so I did it. And uh, man, I used to lift my legs out of the car because they were just dead. And I trained and trained. Uh, I, I became a black belt second down. I, be, I actually became a martial arts instructor. But I had such a bug with the kids. I was honorable. One of those parents, you know, a bit mm. too keen. But my eldest is eight times world martial arts champion. My youngest is one time world champion. Wow. So we did it, you know, and, and uh, they did it under their steam. Dad and Kenny pushing. But again, it's, it's just a... If you try and you, you know, just work. It's funny, my, my eldest who's got the eight world titles, not naturally gifted. He became the world's best and is incredible, but he didn't have it naturally. Whereas the young one could not train and be everybody. Absolutely. Now let's move it to now then. Um, you, you've been in the studio, you've been recording and uh, uh, an old friend of the show as well, Kenny Jones, he's been helping you out on the drums as well. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with the new record. Well, I've been doing a few shows for Kenny because Kenny had had prostate cancer and became a, a real spokesperson for it. And he, he runs um, Hurtwood down, uh, down in Surrey. is a, a polo club. And um, he would do big rock and roll events. Rod's played it, Who's played it, Jeff Beck. And I played along with them and done stuff like that. And then a mate of his, Mark Singer, said, look, you should make a record. Mark was a drummer. And uh, I said, man, I don't know anymore. You know, he said, yeah, yeah, you've got a studio, do it. <clears throat> so I came up here in the studio with Mark, it was just me and a drummer. Wrote these, I was, again, I'd have to write the songs in the morning and then we'd record them in the afternoon. <laughs> and then uh, I just got to thinking about Kenny. I love the small faces. And I realized that he was the last man standing. You know, they've all gone. So I wrote a song with Kenny called Last Man Standing. And another song, which is about the faces, called Sweeter the Second Time Around. Then he came up and, and played on it, just me and him. And then we made a movie of it. And uh, again, pinch yourself, you know. I walk in, I go, you ready? I look and it's Kenny Jones. And, you know, I go right back to me at some festival as this wannabe, watching Kenny with the faces and, you know. And he's my mate, you know, and sincerely my, my mate, you know, it's not just a guy that plays. We, we're just pals. He's a proper bloke, you know, and, and uh, great drummer and a very wonderful human being, you know, that's really devoted his time to this terrible disease for me. You know, I mean, check yourself, guys, everybody. You know, just go to the doctors, get that blood test. It's called PS, PSA test. And uh, just that's all it is. And it tells you whether you should be watching out. And, you know, half, half, half the guys get it. So 
music again can do this incredible thing. Certainly can. In terms of the record itself, I mean, um, have you got a name for the album? Have you got a date for release or anything like that? How are you getting well, There's a song on it called Back on the Loose, and, and it wasn't going to be a title of the album, but it's a real raunchy thing. <laughs> and it kind of, it's a funny thing, you know, a guy in his 60s being back on the loose, but I, I ain't saying, you know, you can see I'm this kid still. And, and uh, so it's all about this guy just coming out of a relationship and, <laughs> picking up the the gauntlet again and just you know causing havoc and uh, yeah so this it's a strong record though I say it myself it's very like um, the first album I made you know uh, kind of balls to the wall you know and, and sincere a lot of guitars a lot of a uh, couple of nice ballads on there uh, but uh, yeah and we as I say we made this film of the making of and I'm so pleased we did it's it's captured it you know so I have high hopes for it, but it's been so long in the making. And then with COVID, you know, it's, it's just uh, calmed us down. Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you, John. Uh, thank you very much for joining us on Vintage Rock Pod. We, we wish you all the best for, for the record going forward. Well, let's not make it eight years next time. <laughs> no, not at all. I've loved it. God bless. Thank you, man. There you go, the brilliant John Parr. What an incredible life he's had. Real ups, real downs. But so glad he's come through the other side of it all. And I'm really looking forward to hearing what he and friend of the show Kenny Jones have come up with when the new music drops. And a quick reminder, if you haven't heard any of the other interviews on earlier episodes, please do go back and check them out because there's some great insights from so many different stars. Last week's episode with former Rainbow and Deep Purple singer Jolyn Turner has been so well received. In fact, it's got the biggest number of first week downloads of any episode I've released so far. So check that one out. Check out the others as well, including the singer of the German rocker Scorpions, Klaus Mein, that was brilliant. Kenny Jones, who John Parr's mentioned there. He was our first guest on episode one. I've spoken to two different members of Dire Straits as well so many many people that you can listen back to and find out some fantastic stories from the world of rock just have a scroll back through the list of episodes and enjoy right now it's the time of the show where I give you my top 5 song recommendations of the artist I've just interviewed so here we go the top 5 John Parr songs according to Vintage Rock Pod at 5 is the track that first catapulted him into the spotlight a big hit in America it's cheeky it's bouncy it's naughty at number five is Naughty Naughty. Next up is one of his newer songs from his 2012 album, The Mission. It's confident, it packs a punch with a driving riff throughout. At number four is Military Man. At number three is a duet with his good friend and longtime collaborator Meatloaf. It's 80s rock. It went top 40 in the UK in 1986. At number three is Rock and Roll Mercenaries. The song at number two is the big one it's known the world over went to number one in many countries came from a massive massive movie of the 80s but was written with a meaning of so much more it's iconic it's still played on the radio today and number two is St Elmo's Fire and at number one is a song he wrote in remembrance of the great Keith Moon of The Who Roger Daltrey originally recorded it and it became the title of his sixth solo album too John Entwistle also recorded a version of the track John Parr himself has a brilliant version on his live album Letter to America, which is raw and sounds fantastic. The number one John Parr song, according to Vintage Rock Pod, is Under a Raging Moon. And it's funny, really, because when you say John Parr, everyone always thinks of St. Elmo's Fire. 
but he's got a great back catalogue of his own stuff, let alone the stuff that he's written for others as well. Uh, I didn't even mention Restless Heart. That was one of his big songs which came from movies. Or even the song that everyone connects with, the Gillette adverts now. You know, the best the man can get? Yeah, that's a John Parr song. So there you go. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of that list. Let me know on social media. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, that sort of stuff. Or as I said earlier, sign up to be a VRP, VIP, and give your feedback directly to me too. Just head to vintagerockpod.com. Right, before we catch up with our good friend, author and journalist from youdiscovermusic.com and record collector magazine, Tim Peacock, it's time for us to bring back the Vintage Rock Pod quiz. And because we've had John Parr on the show and he's done so many big songs from some huge movies like St Elmo's, obviously, then there was The the Running Man starring Arnold Schwarzenegger, Quicksilver starring Kevin Bacon, and Three Men and a Baby starring Tom Selleck, Steve Gutenberg, and Ted Danson. This week's quiz is going to be about rock music in the movies. Now, who better to take part in the quiz than a man who co-hosts a podcast about, well, songs from movies. So I was delighted to welcome to the Vintage Rock Pod, Dietrich, from That Song, From That Movie podcast. Hello, hi, thanks for having me. No worries at all, Dietrich. Now, are you you worried about this? I mean, this should be easy for a man of your your talents. (laughs) Oh, yeah, I am nervous. Very nervous. (laughs) I'm a late late substitute. It was supposed to be uh, someone else on the podcast, a guy called Ben, and... uh, here I am instead. So uh, if it's zero out, of, zero out of 15, it's zero out of 15. And I had a great time. No, you're not going to get zero, <laughs> but uh, you should at least get five points for showing up because Ben should get minus five for, for bottling out at the last minute. But there you go. Exactly. Anyway, it's this simple, yeah, simple game rules apply. It's uh, first answer is accepted. If you pass, we can go back to it. There's a three minute maximum. So once the time is up, the time is up. Okay. Okay, doke. That makes sense. Right. I will just get the timer up now and we will start. Here we go. Question one. In which Rocky film is Survivor's Eye of the Tiger first heard in? Rocky 3. Rocky 3. Um, Survivor also recorded the anthem for the next Rocky movie too. What was that song called? Burning Hearts. Burning Heart. Question three. The Iron Man 2 soundtrack is made up entirely of songs from which band? ACDC. ACDC. The theme tune to the 1967 movie The Graduate came from which group? Oh, we've done this on the podcast. <laughs> oh, um, pass. We'll come back to it. Pass. We'll come back to that one. Um, question five: Which Bond song was the first to be nominated for a Grammy for Best Original Song? A few to a kill. A few to a kill. Uh, which British film from 1979 is based around the album of the same name from the Who? Oh. Um... I'm going to say Pinball Wizard. (laughs) Pinball Wizard. Question seven. Which band provided the hit songs Power of Love and Back in Time for the Back to the Future movie? Huey Lewis and the News. Huey Lewis and the News. Question eight. Iggy Pop's 1977 classic track Lust for Life was the song that was used in the opening scene of which movie? Trainspotting. Trainspotting. Question nine. The iconic scene of a car full of passengers headbanging to Bohemian Rhapsody appears in which film? Wayne's World. Question 10. The 1989 Batman movie starring Jack Nicholson and Michael Keating features a soundtrack from which artist? Prince. Question 11. Kenny Loggins and Berlin provided huge songs to which 1986 film? Oh, that's Top Gun. Top Gun. Answered that one with confidence. Question 12. Which band sang the signature song from the movie Armageddon? Aerosmith. Question 13. The 1986 John Hughes movie Pretty in Pink included the song of the same name recorded by which band? 
Pass. Pass on that one too. Question 14. Which rock legend released the song Streets of Philadelphia from the movie Philadelphia? Bruce Springsteen. And last question. Which Scottish band's iconic track was used in the 1985 film The Breakfast Club? Simple Minds. Simple Minds. You passed on a couple. Let's go back to question four. The theme tune to the 1967 movie The Graduate came from which group? Simon and Garfunkel. And you also passed on question 13, which was the 1986 John Hughes movie Pretty in Pink included the song of the same name recorded by which band? This whole... Oh. You've got 20 seconds, a bit of time to think. I've got nothing. I've got nothing. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm blanking. <laughs> really, I'm blanking. Time is up anyway. How long? Just on cue, uh, just on cue. Time is up. Well, to be fair there, Dietrich, I think you've done pretty well. You, you were a bit nervous. I said they weren't too difficult. So let's have a quick run through the answers and see how you got on. Question one. Oh. Rocky film with uh, Survivor's Eye of the Tiger was Rocky 3, correct? And the follow-up for Rocky 4 was Burning Hearts. That's two out of two. Hey. The Iron Man 2 soundtrack was made up entirely of songs from ACDC. That's correct as well. We had to go back to this one, but you did get it right. Simon and Garfunkel did provide the classic track, Mrs. Robinson. Yeah, it was in there somewhere. It was there. You managed to pull it out of the bag just in time. Um, the Bond song, which was the first to be nominated for a Grammy, you said, A View to a Kill, it was Live and Let Die. Ah. Yes. Yep. Uh, 90, uh, 1979 film based around the album of The Who, you said Pinball Wizard, it was Quadrophenia. Ah. Here we go. Yep. Question seven, Huey Lewis in the news. That was correct. He provided the songs for Back to the Future, of course. Uh, Iggy Pop's classic track, Lust for Life, was used in Trainspotting. Again, correct. Um, the iconic scene where they all headbanged to Bohemian Rhapsody. We all loved it. That is Wayne's World. You were correct with that one as well. Yep. Uh, 1989 Batman movie was created, the soundtrack by Prince. Well done. Uh, Kenny Loggins and Berlin provided two songs to Top Gun. Again, correct. Uh, Aerosmith, again, correct on question 12 from the Armageddon movie soundtrack. Um, the question that you didn't get was question 13. Here we go. The song Pretty in Pink was by The Psychedelic Furs. Ooh, there we go. I would never have guessed that. <laughs> <laughs> You'll know from now on, though. Maybe you can do that on, on your next yes. podcast. Um, yeah. Question 14, which rock legend released Streets of Philadelphia was Bruce Springsteen? And the final question was Simple Minds. That is correct from the film The Breakfast Club. So with three wrong, that works out at 12 out of 15. That's not bad at all, Dietrich. Well done. I will take that. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Do you think Ben would have done any better? Uh, let's say no. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I agree with you. So we've mentioned it a couple of times. Your, your podcast is the song from that movie. Give us a little bit of a gist about what, what, what happens in your podcast then. Yeah, so each week we talk about a different song or songs, depending on what the film is, from a, a movie. Um, all different uh, genres. Obviously, we do rock music, but we do look at look other genres as well. And uh, yeah, it's, it's basically just a reason for us to get to chat about films. But uh, yeah, we go through the through the eyes of looking through the song and uh, seeing how it was used in the movie, and uh, it's, it's all in good fun. Absolutely good fun. You can find I'm guessing on all the usual platforms. Do you have a website or a, a social media that anyone can follow? Yeah, uh, so you, you could pretty much search that song from that movie, and we come up uh, on Twitter with TSFTM Pod, which is hard to remember for some reason. <laughs> <laughs> Someone else took uh, TSFTM. It would have been too too easy just to have that <laughs> it would have been. But, uh, yeah we're on all platforms so just give us a search and we will pop up somewhere absolutely thank you very much we, we appreciate you taking your time to come on the Vintage Rock Pod this week Dietrich thank you thanks for, thanks for having us 12 out of 15 is a cracking score and he goes onto our leaderboard which I'll post up on social media in a few days time 
Right now, it's that part of the show where we get the goss from our favourite rockers. It's the time to get this week's classic rock news from our good friend, author and journalist, Tim Peacock. Hi, Paul. How are you doing then? I'm very well indeed. Thank you very much. Now, um, I always like to find out what you've got lined up for us this week, and, um, and I'm sure it's going to be fantastic. So what story have you got first for us? OK, OK. Suitably eclectic mix anyway, Paul. To start with, uh, let's go back to a band who first came to prominence during the 1970s. Um, I don't know, certainly myself, I, um, I certainly got into listening to Sparks when I saw them on top of the pops doing... Um, this town ain't big enough for the both of us in the 1970s. Yeah. And um, my first item contains um, news about Sparks tonight. Uh, it's because there's actually an upcoming documentary about the band that is being made at the moment. It's called uh, The Sparks Brothers, even though they're actually the male brothers, but it's called The Sparks Brothers. And it's being, <laughs> it's being made by a director of a film called Hot Physics, a guy called Edgar Wright, he's an American director who really likes the band. And the Sparks Brothers, we don't actually have a release date for it as yet, but he did share a two-minute clip of it on uh, Twitter the other day, So, but I'm not sure when it's going to be widely available. But anyway, um, yeah, well, Sparks, interesting band, of course. They've been into lots of different styles. We tend to think of them from that sort of classic rock period from the 70s when they did Kimono My House and a couple of albums after that, Indiscreet and Propaganda. They were actually quite a big influence on Queen at the time, but of course they've done lots of other things since. Were they a band you ever listened to much yourself? I can't say they were, to be honest with you, Tim. They weren't. They really didn't appear on my radar. I, I obviously know the big hits, like you said, this town ain't big enough for the brothers yeah. and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, they weren't. Yeah, sort of band that I really delved into deeply. But now you've said that, I'm gonna have to go and check them out more. <laughs> well, they're interesting. I mean, they are an interesting band. I mean, stylistically, they've gone all over the place over the years. And mm. apparently, uh, Edgar Wright, the director, did say about the he really got into them when he first saw them on top of the pops in 1979. And he said that he was a big fan of the song "Beat the." clock that they had which was a hit which was kind of more like a load sort of disco electro pop song really they've changed so much over the years but they are one of those bands you often hear people kind of name dropping and they're you know they're an interesting band certainly so and in the little clip he's had advertising the documentary uh, people like uh, flea from the red hot chili peppers and jack antonoff who most people probably know as taylor swift's producer so i mean they really do appeal to a crop that across the board you know um selection of of music fans and um, now I don't have a definite date for when it's coming out but the Sparks Brothers has been made it's premiered at the um, Sundance Film Festival and I assume later this year it'll be more widely available anyway so that's the first thing to look out for tonight anyway good stuff we look forward to that right well Wells have you got lined up for us then Okay, the next one, uh, band, I think we did touch on in um, a, previous, uh, a previous news roundup, but this is something different. Uh, Def Leppard, um, they've actually just kicked off a, uh, well, they've now kicked off a weekly series of what they call thematic artist compilations. They're going to be uh, bringing one out like one per week, each member of the band. These are actually across um, their self-chosen selections of their favourite music, if you like. Uh, they're going to be across digital platforms. And uh, the first one actually started yesterday, was launched yesterday, was Joe Elliott's. And it's called Electric Warriors. Now, I don't actually have a, um, a rundown of the track list with it, but if I, if I know Joe, I've interviewed him a couple of times, and I know that there'll be things like certainly David Bowie, there'll be Queen, there'll be Thin Lizzy, all kinds of classic rock stuff on that, I imagine, anyway. Um, what's happening in the band are actually going to, each member of the band are going to be launching one of these once a, once a week anyway. They'll be available through 
most digital platforms, it's things like Spotify and Apple Music and iTunes and most of the usual suspects will have them. But Joe's one is called Electric Warriors and that is now live. So if you go to any of those platforms, you'll be able to check that one out. Next week, apparently, it's Rick Allen's turn, the drummer, and then I, the other three guys will be after that. So I'm not sure in what order they're going to be. But, uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're into all kinds of music, really. They, they did that uh, covers album called Yeah, You Might Remember, and that was yeah. um, I, I mean, Joe, Joe Elliott is a huge fan of you know, Bowie and Mott the Hoople and Bowling and Pig Mark Bowling and people. So I imagine there'll be a lot of that kind of thing. And probably some punk and various things in there, too. So, yeah. Could be an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. It'd be interesting. I haven't seen it, but it'd be interesting to see whether he's chosen any from a, a newish band called The Struts because uh, mm, he sang yes. on their, their recent album. So it, Indeed, yeah. It'd be yeah. interesting to see if they're included. Yeah, I think The Struts the are Struts actually an interesting band in themselves. I mean, I think they're... I have actually uh, interviewed Luke Spiller, their singer, and oh, uh, they were in, wow. they're in America, yeah. I mean, they've, they've spent a lot of time in the States. I think they're from Derby, I think, originally, but they um, they spent a lot of time in the States. And I know he's friends with people like Steven Tyler and, and as you said, Joe Elliott did recently collaborate with them so I think they're getting a lot of kudos from kind of classic rock bands so they're a group I think will be around for a while anyway so yeah could be interesting <laughs> could be interesting indeed yeah. we look out for that one then and yeah. uh, what's the last story for us final then? one is um, uh, well another another um, classic uh, rock hero if you like who's sadly no longer with us but this is about commemorating him um, Gary Moore Oh, Belfast yeah. guitar god who of course yeah there's a campaign at the moment we were, before Christmas Paul remember we were talking about um, a campaign to sort of preserve the memory of Pete Shelley in his mm -hmm. hometown in the north of England yeah. uh, Belfast now is, wants to do something similar for Gary Moore who you know kind of local icon local boy made good if you like and um, it was actually apparently it's the anniversary of his death uh, today it's the 10th yeah. anniversary of his passing right. today um, and apparently they, they, there's a thing called the Wild Frontier Memorial Pro, uh, Pro, uh, Project, which is led by members of Gary's family and fans. And uh, apparently they've actually gained support from the Green Party and the Alliance Party in Belfast. And they want to put up a statue to commemorate Gary and his achievements. And they want to have that in place for 2023. Apparently Belfast had actually was going to be like a UNESCO City of Culture or the equivalent mm. thing in 2023 but uh, i'm not sure because of brexit whether that's made i'm not sure exactly whether that's affected that or not gary's sister patricia did actually release um she's she's made a statement saying that gary loved his city and although his career would take him everywhere his music was always influenced by the nature and beauty of belfast and indeed all of ireland uh, gary was very very proud to be from belfast he loved to tell people that it was his home and uh, you know obviously he's someone he's often up there he's mentioned in the same breath as people like um, you know Peter Green and Eric Clapton so certainly someone that I think people miss so yeah it, I'd say that's probably would you say that I think that's reasonable to to commemorate him in, in statue I yeah think. absolutely yeah he's an icon isn't he he's yeah one of the, the greatest guitar gods there was so I don't mm. see any reason why there shouldn't be something yeah. to, to commemorate him yeah Absolutely, yeah. Well, like I say, fans apparently have already raised £5,000 for the project. Um, the only reason, they were actually going to have tribute gigs to it, but because of the pandemic, obviously, that went up the spout. Yeah. But I think it certainly, it looks like it is on course to happen. So with a bit of luck, that will will happen and it will be unveiled in 2023. So fingers crossed on that one. Fingers crossed indeed. Thank you very much, Tim, for joining us and bringing us all the latest rock news with our favourite classic rock stars. Thank you very much. You're very welcome, Paul. Thank you. And just some other late news to add in. I spoke to Dire Straits drummer Pick Withers before Christmas on episode 12. 
and he told us about an online gig that he was supposed to be doing with his new group, Slim Pickings. Well, it didn't go ahead due to the new lockdown enforced at the turn of the year and all that sort of stuff, but it has been rescheduled. I was sent this short recording to use on the podcast from a video he put on social media. It's Pick talking about what you can expect from his new gig. Now, he is sat behind his drum kit if you're wondering what the sounds are. It will be a little window into the music that I began playing in the mid-60s, which is basically our rhythm and blues based, and I'm really excited about it because I've got the greatest rhythm section I've ever played one since Dylan. And uh, it's uh, and I've got two talented young singers who are really well equipped to do justice to the genre, so it should be really great. So the new online show is coming live from the Hope Street Theatre in Liverpool. It's March the 6th, it's a Saturday night, get your ticket now. It's just a tenor to see the silky smooth drummer and his new band in action. Search on social media for Pick Withers to get all the links to buy tickets and all that sort of stuff. And there you go. That's it for episode 15 then. Thanks so much, as always, for listening. Keep spreading the word. Tell your friends, your family, your colleagues, people on the street, anybody. Just tell them to get listening. Subscribe on whatever directory you're listening to this on so you can go back and enjoy all the previous episodes too and that you don't miss any of the great guests I've got lined up to follow as well. Check us out on social media or on most platforms. Just search for Vintage Rock Pod. Leave us a review, five-star rating, that sort of stuff on iTunes, Apple Podcasts or whatever it is. That all helps as well. And of course, get signed up to be a VRP VIP. Head to our website, vintagerockpod.com and fill in the form now. Go on, do it. Do it now. Do it. Until episode 16 then. Remember, if you come across anyone who isn't a fan, just tell them my music is better than yours. Take care. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.